if we suddenly realize that there were one of a larger group of living things, not just on this planet, which we're starting to become more aware of, but in the broader solar system and, and universe, then suddenly we start thinking of ourselves more collectively. And I think that's the key to our future for, you know, more sustainable situation mm -hmm. on this planet is looking at ourselves more collectively rather than kind of splitting ourselves apart. Hello, everybody. Welcome to College of the Redwoods Presents What's the Issue With podcast. I am here with two of our College of Redwoods professors. My name is Matthew Sandeos. I'm a business professor on campus, and I'm excited to be hosting this podcast. We are going to be talking about UFOs, space, time, relativity, things coming to our planet, us going to other planets. So it's going to be a very exciting chit chat. So I'll let the professors introduce themselves for about 20 to 40 seconds and then get to the exciting content. John, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Dr. John Pettuccino. Uh, I've been teaching at uh, CR for uh, 20 years, um, and I teach all the astro classes. I have, like Eric, a background in physics, as you know, astronomy is is a, uh, if you will, a subset of physics. My specific expertise is in planetary geology. So when I was in grad school back in the 90s, I was looking at the planet Mars and whether or not Mars was in the past conducive potentially for life. So that kind of is a theme that's kind of fed throughout my classes. I teach um, an intro to astronomy class, astronomy 10 and astronomy 11, which is a, a solar system specific class. Both of those are general education classes. So that's the bulk of what I do, but for kicks and for to stretch our minds and, and expand our imaginations. I also teach a class called teaching science with science fiction, which uh, we watch sci-fi movies like interstellar and the Martian and kind of tease them apart and see if they're real. And then lastly, I have a little one credit elective, which I offer called Are UFOs Real? So I guess that prepared me for today's discussion. I'm Dr. Eric Kramer. I teach uh, the physics classes at, at College of the Redwoods, uh, ranging from the calculus-based physics uh, to conceptual physics. Actually, conceptual physics is probably one of my favorite classes because we get into things like relativity, quantum physics, some of the things that might come up uh, as we talk here. Uh, my background in, in graduate school was in theoretical particle physics, and I did some research involving uh, string theory and granny unified field uh, theory. Awesome. Like good stuff. As we go to our first question, um, um, leading into space travel and UFOs, you know, the government prefers to call them UAPs, which is unidentified aerial phenomena. Mm -hmm. um, but when we are talking about space travel and UFOs, what, what is something that we should know about? Well, I mean, Matthew, let me just say it right off the bat, I'll cut to the chase. Uh, if you're asking, are we alone in the universe? Uh, I think my answer has to be, you know, emphatically no. Okay. Uh, though we don't have, I don't know that we have concrete evidence of life on another world, be it Mars or somewhere in our solar system or anywhere else. The fact of the matter is just the size and the scale of the universe and the age of the universe would seem to almost preclude the notion that we're alone. Now that doesn't mean necessarily that we've been visited. Uh, you know, Eric and I are going to get into a little discussion here shortly, but when you get a sense for the scale of the universe and the age of the universe, even if life is some sort of cosmic fluke, some chemistry experiment gone wild, I can't imagine that it only took place here. Having said that, maybe it's possible that the timing is off, that the scale is off. I mean, the distance scale, you just mentioned interstellar. I mean, the reality of an interstellar to travel to other planets, we had to go through a wormhole, uh, which Eric can probably talk a little bit about the possibility of that. But the scale of the universe is so large um, that even our, our most advanced probes that were launched in the 70s and have been traveling for 40 plus years have traveled a mere one two thousandth, one two thousandth of the distance to the nearest star. 
So the notion that we can just kind of jet around the, the universe uh, a la Star Trek with a warp drive uh, may be the requirement because uh, the distances are so great. And then there's a question of timing. You know, if you had visited the Earth 66 million years ago, you would have been talking to dinosaurs. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the, you know, so the timing in the universe is not all the same. Well, I think, you know, like you look at the history of science, like we kind of, I think there's like a starting assumption at some point that we were really unique. And then you look at like, as we made progress, like, you know, in Galileo's time, we realized, oh, maybe this planet isn't so unique. There are other moving objects that move just like we do. Um, and now you look today, like the discovery of exoplanets. I mean, certainly when we were younger, we didn't think there were going to be so many. Um, and so I think if things kind of progress in that, uh, in that kind of fashion, we'll soon discover more and more that we are less unique than we thought um, that we are. But I agree with what you said that, you know, the likelihood of us actually like either reaching ET or, or them reaching us, like there are some huge obstacles uh, to that that makes uh, modern scientists feel very skeptical about those kinds of things. Yeah, I think you, you make, Eric makes a really good point here about the, the history of our perspective, right? We, you go back to the time, like you mentioned, Galileo, it was geocentrism, right? We were the center of the universe and we were perceived as unique for a variety of, of reasons. I think if science has learned anything in those intervening 400 years uh, is that uh, we know enough now to know we don't know much. I sort of throw that up in my classes. I said, if you had asked someone in astronomy or physics 100 years ago as they were discovering the atom and electrons and, and the nature of energy and matter with Einstein, uh, and you ask them, how long do you think it is before we actually have this stuff figured out? They might have said, and this of course is hubris, but they might've said, we're pretty close. You know, We should have things figured out in the next 20 or 30 years. Uh, meanwhile, 100 years later, I would argue that now we know enough to know we don't know anything. Mm. Not, that, not that we don't know more now than we did 100 years ago, but that there's so yeah. many doors to open you know, like you were saying, um, you know, we're, we're in our infancy. We're just really taking those first steps. Something that really excites me is anytime I see the news or, or any current event say like, oh, new UFO, like new documents or new, you know, revealing. Um, and I go to YouTube and I watch the little, you know, pixelated video of something flying through the sky. And I never really know what it is or what it could be. You know, it's some random person filming it right in the middle of the woods. But um, I, I think I heard recently there's going to be some new revealing uh, in June of, um, some, of UFOs that recently passed. Are, are there any current events of UFOs or, or current stories that you can maybe touch on? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're referring to there is, is, is in the budget that was passed last year in the United States government, they are required to produce a, a report on UAPs, as they call them, like you said, unidentified aerial phenomenon. Uh, as of this June. So that that's what we're seeing in the news here is a lot of the lead up to that because the Pentagon has declassified a number of uh, sort of sets of images, a lot of them taken by like fighter pilots and, and the like. Um, and so people have probably been exposed to that over, even if you're not tuned into UFOs, you've probably been exposed to that over the last few months. You're saying, man, there's a lot of talk about UFOs. Prominent people like former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid uh, have suggested that he believes that there that we might have been visited at some point in the past. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just paraphrasing. So I think that's what's going on. They've released a number of those videos. I do agree with you, Matthew, though, though, if you take a look at those videos, they are intriguing, um, but ambiguous, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there's there's often not a sense of distance, of scale, of real motion. So when they say things like, this thing was moving faster than any jet or any drone could possibly move, well. Yeah, depending on the, the trigonometry of it, the orientation of everything, you know, that's mm -hmm. that's a piece of that puzzle. Yeah, so I guess piggybacking into that, what what would it take for a UFO to get here? I'll start by saying probably, according to current physics, a lot of time. Mm -hmm. 
I don't think it would really be that viable to actually for like life forms to travel that kind of distance, at least certainly, I mean, science fiction has, has looked at that. Um, certainly for us in the foreseeable future, that's true. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to sound too uh, pessimistic here, but, but certainly we don't have any evidence of that happening. I, th I think it would be more likely for some kind of unmanned kind of, or un, unpersoned, maybe be the better word, a probe or maybe unbeinged, I don't know, because we're talking about aliens, right? That's a good point. Um, you know, but whether they would send themselves or some kind of, you know, like autonomous, you know, uh, system. Um, yeah, I think it's similar, like how we sent a rover recently to Mars. You're, you're saying a UFO would send a, a fully autonomous spaceship. Yeah, over. I mean, the one issue is they wouldn't really be able to control it as easily because of the distances hmm. involved following the rules of relativity. Uh huh. So that means, Eric, that we'd have to have some sort of AI on board, right? So some sort of you yeah. know, ability to sort of make its own decisions. Even the rovers on Mars, you know, in the morning, NASA kind of wakes the rover up and says, we want you to go here. And then the rover kind of decides the best path based on obstacles in front of it and images and whatnot. So there's a little AI even built into things yeah. like the rover and, and, the, and the helicopter ingenuity that are there right now. So mm -hmm. I think I think Eric makes a good point. I mean, if you look at science fiction, um, you got two choices when you want to travel to the stars right now. It's either the slow boat, which means that you got to have human popsicles. You know, you got to turn, you got to put everyone into suspended animation or hibernation or whatever it is, right? And then wake them up when you get there. Or you got to have some sort of generational spaceship, which is hugely problematic because it's got to be huge, you know, to generate a viable population, uh, genetic diversity and all that. And then there's exposure, radiation, et cetera. And then there's the more intriguing possibility. And I think Eric could probably speak to this a little better. And that is the idea that we could somehow get that boat moving pretty quick. In other words, maybe even violate physics as we understand it, maybe not violate it, but at least kind of come in the back door to try to create a, a vessel that could travel, quote unquote, faster than light. Yeah, that's certainly an idea that I know when I was younger, I was really intrigued by it and even thought about like, how could like, are there ways that it could be done that wouldn't violate the known laws um, of physics? And there have been some proposed that I think we're gonna talk about. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's worth saying right at the beginning, we cer certainly have not seen anything like that yet or, or anything that's all too promising in terms of like we're going to make it in the next whatever decade or couple decades. Yeah, as, as impressive as Elon Musk and, and, and Starship is, uh, is, is planned to go back to the moon in the mid-20s and maybe by 2030 have uh, human bootprints on Mars, that's a whole different ballgame in terms of scale, right? I mean, those ships are traveling tens of thousands of miles an hour, which again is fast, you know, it's many multiples the speed of an airplane or a jet, but it still takes, you know, months to get to the nearest planet, okay? So yeah. I think that's something worth mentioning here that when we talk about scale of the universe, the next star, you know, it, like I said, is thousands of times further away than Pluto, okay? Yeah. And, and then, you know, you extend that to the galaxy. And even though you're talking about the galaxies are huge. I mean, the Milky Way galaxy that we live in has billions, really hundreds of billions of stars. Um, and then uh, sort of travel to any of those, you're talking about multiples uh, beyond that of, of hundreds and thousands of times more. And then you want to get out to the next galaxy over and you're talking about millions of times further out. So if you don't pick up the speed and find some way to do it safely, because I mean, Eric will be the first to tell you that even if you can get that ship traveling at half the speed of light uh, through space, I wouldn't want to meet a speck of dust at half the oh. speed of light. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, like you, uh, Matthew, you mentioned in Interstellar earlier, and one of the things that was kind of cool about that movie is how it got into time dilation type of effects. Uh, maybe not every part of it was realistic to that, but it still at least tried to deal with it in a way that was like, hey, this is part of the universe uh, we live in. And in that sense, if, you know, following the laws of physics as we know them right now, if we were to send like a, like a generational ship 
you know, we could maybe get it up to really high speeds. And what's really cool is actually uh, because of length contraction, uh, if you get a ship going fast enough for the people on the ship, uh, they could actually maybe do it in a small enough amount of time, provided they don't hit that speck of dust that might blow up the whole ship or don't have some way of dealing with that. But still, if you get it going fast enough, uh, it turns out the amount of time for those people will be less compared to the amount of time measured for observers on Earth. But on the other hand, if you do uh, like a round trip and you come back, you know, you may like set, let's say you get it going fast enough and maybe you could do that in 20 years. But then when you get back, 400 years has passed. And I'm just throwing some numbers in the air here um, yeah. without doing any calculations. But those m might be representative of what could happen in such a, a scenario. Mm -hmm. uh, more likely, though, I think with uh, like if the ship were not able to get to the kinds of speeds where those kinds of numbers would be realistic, maybe because we don't want to hit a speck of dust and have the ship blow up, then it would have to be a generation ship. And maybe it would take like, you know, 100 some years or a couple hundred years, you know, for the passengers. But at the same time, more time, if they if you did a round trip, there'd be more time passing on Earth uh, during the same voyage, which is a kind of weird effect, but it's predicted by relativity, Einstein's relativity. Uh, yeah, and, and that's and Eric makes a good point. Relativity is one of those things I was referring to like 100 years ago. You know, once we started to figure that out, we're like, oh, there's some things here that really we thought didn't change like time yeah. and length and mass that do actually get affected when you travel close to this, the speed of light, whatever that means. And Eric makes a great point. I mean, if you can get up to 99.9% .9 of the speed of light and send a ship out to a distance of say 10 light years, I mean, that's a unit hopefully people are familiar with, but it, it's basically the distance light travels in a year. So 10 light years means if you're traveling at the speed of light, it should take you 10 years to get there. But as Eric pointed out, if you are traveling close to the speed of light, time slows down for you, right? Mm. So you get out there 10 years out, uh, 10 light years out, and it might've felt like it only took you a year. The problem is the people on earth thought it took you 10 years, right? So you go out and back, two years have gone by for you, but 20 years have gone by for the people on earth. So you're effectively traveling into the future because mm. time is traveling at a different pace for you. And that's so that, what that's what the movie Interstellar touched on, we're going to the planets with different gravities or, and, yeah. and kind of just putting more into context of the scale, time, and energy of space. Yeah. Um, like, can you put maybe some words of, of clarification on exactly scale, time, and energy of referring to space? Well, I think, I think we've gotten a, a little bit of a sense here, just touched on the scale of the universe. It's, it's enormous. I think realistically, no matter what type of ship we have, we're probably not leaving the Milky Way galaxy. And people hear that and they're like, oh no, you know, but keep in mind, Star Trek always stays in the same galaxy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, the Milky Way has 400 billion stars in it, okay? And from what we have found uh, in recent days, of uh, recent times, uh, I say days more metaphorically, but in the last 20 years or so, we have discovered that almost every one of those planets seems to have, excuse me, every one of those stars, those 400 billion stars, seems to potentially have planets around it. Um, and many of those planets are Earth-like, right? So when we say we're not going to leave the Milky Way, even though the distances are great, there's so many cool places to visit, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the, the latest stat I've seen, I mean, we have, just to put it in perspective for everybody, in 1995, 26 years ago, um, that was the time we first found a planet orbiting another star. Now, it wasn't necessarily a shock that that was the case. I mean, folks that studied the planets suggested that based on what we know about a formation of our solar system, that the formation of other planets around other stars should be fairly commonplace. What has been exciting though, is how much many of those other systems look like our own system. So yeah. if you're asking like of those 400 billion stars, what are the chances that they might have not only multiple planets, but an earth-like planet, right? At least an abode that worked for life here. 
Uh, the answer is somewhere around 20 to 50%. It looks like about 20 to 50% of the stars out there in our galaxy potentially statistically have Earth-like planets. That's a high percent. That, I was going to say that's something I think the thinking has really changed on. I, mean, I think when the first exoplanets were discovered, people thought it was going to be a much smaller percentage that would be potentially like us in the habitable zone, in the Goldilocks zone, I guess is another word, right, yeah. um, for that. But, but now it seems like there's a preponderance of those out there. Yeah, I mean, what they're finding is, I mean, I think with the number is over 5,000 exoplanets that they've officially discovered around the nearest, say, thousand stars. And they're finding, number one, that multiple star, multiple planets are very common, even in multiple star systems. So sometimes you have more than one star, but they're finding that, you know, let's say each system has five or six or eight planets. And then, you know, a small percentage of those are Earth-like. But when, you know, like if only 5% of the planets you're finding are Earth-like, but you've got five planets in a system, now you've got a 25% chance that you're going to have an Earth-like planet in each individual system. So that I agree with Eric 100%. That was a little bit of a surprise because the first planets we were starting to find were the big gas bags, the Jupiter-like planets. And they were in all sorts of quirky positions. Like our Jupiter is, is located a little further out. They found Jupiters that were close to their stars, which is problematic for Earth-like planets because they can really disrupt the inner solar system. Uh, and now we realize that those were just the outliers, right? So the first ones you're gonna find, of course, are the big planets. And now that you know we started to appreciate the details, we're starting to see way more of these smaller planets that find these little niches where they can potentially survive and perhaps sort of germinate the potential for life. I think if I may just add real quick that um, one of the issues there is that those planets were easier to measure. So so yeah. naturally you find those first and then as as measuring techniques change and develop, the story kind of changes. Yeah, 100%. I mean, this is like flying over the forest at 30,000 feet and you say, well, there's a lot of trees down there. But now, uh, now we're going for a walk in the forest and realizing that there's mushrooms and little squirrels and birds and all sorts of details we hadn't seen the first time. Yeah, that's uh, a great that's analogy. Good. Yeah, that's a very good analogy. Um, so let's talk about space. What is space like? I, I remember being a kid and someone telling me that if I went to space, that I would freeze on one side of my body and then I would burn on the other side because of the sun and, and the cold. And I hope that you could debunk that because that sounds crazy. But um, but, but talk to us what, what space would be like. Eric, you want to take that? I was going to let you take this one. It seemed like it was more in your area. <laughs> well, so I don't want to, yeah, Matthew, I don't want to totally debunk that. Actually, space is kind of quirky. I mean, if you're out in space, you got, first of all, I'm assuming you're in a space suit, right? Because there's no pressure in space. So you would have other problems without the suit. But interestingly enough, folks think of space, generally think of space, I think, as cold. But the reality is, if you're in sunlight, space, quote unquote, or at least the exposure to sunlight in space makes you really hot. Like, for example, the surface of the moon, the surface temperature of the lit portion of the moon, if your astronauts are standing on the moon, the Apollo astronauts in the 60s and early 70s, the temperature on the surface of the moon is about 200 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, that's the boiling point of water. Oh, wow. Those spacesuits are actually designed, I mean, the suits were white to reflect as much of that light as possible, to keep them a little cooler, sort of like wearing a white shirt on a hot sunny day. And then um, they actually circulated cool water in the suits to keep the astronauts from overheating. Yet, if an astronaut had walked into the shade on the moon, okay, into the shade of a rock, temperatures plummet to a couple hundred degrees, even more below zero. Wow. Okay? So in a sense, yeah, if you straddled between the sunlight and the, and, the, and the cold, you would be cooking on one side and, and really cold on the other. So those spacesuits were actually designed more to keep the astronauts cool than to keep them uh, warm in that. And so they tended not to allow them into the dark. And this is true of the space station. You're sitting on a space station doing a spacewalk. You know, and you're in sunshine for 45 minutes, and and it's hot, and you're in yeah. and you're in darkness for the other 45 minutes as you go around the Earth, and it gets it gets pretty darn cold. Wow. I want to 
uh, maybe a, a piggyback on that, that uh, there's something to be said about heat transfer mechanisms. Like when you're in the shade, you know, vacuum is like the ultimate insulator. So even though maybe like it's cold, you know, around you, but what does that even mean? Like usually here on earth, we would say, well, the, the air is cold, but there is no air. So what is there to be cold? Well, the rocks you're standing on perhaps, right? But in that sense, like, even if those are really cold, like how fast is the thermal energy from your body, you know, uh, transferring into that? And if there's no air, there's no convection, which is usually the fastest way that people would get cold in a cold environment here on earth, like that is not there. So you actually wouldn't get cold fast. On the other hand, when you're in the sunlight, now there's radiative or, you know, uh, radiation heat transfer, and that's potentially fast enough to cook you. So I think what, that kind of explains what, what John just said about how the real job of the spacesuit is to keep you cool when that is happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, no doubt uh, the atmosphere of the earth uh, um, limits uh, or changes the environment dramatically than space would. Are there, are there any theories that suggest that a different, um, different galaxy might have a different um, type of space than, than ours? I guess they would have a different sun maybe. Um, I mean, when I think of space, Matthew, I mean, I think of the universe itself as having certain properties. So uh, Eric and I think like physicists think we try to quantify like, um, you know, conditions. So when you say kind of empty space or open space, I would say that's where there's very little matter. And what's most important to me when you're floating in space, if you will, is not so much the radiation coming in from a star or, the, or, or other things that we've discussed, but it's also the properties of space. In other words, if you have matter in space, then that the property of matter is gravity, right? So that, you know, if I'm standing on a moon in another galaxy and the moon is the same size as our moon and the sun is the same size as our sun, the conditions are going to be the same. I drop a hammer on the moon, it's gonna fall at the same rate yeah. because the force of gravity is a property of space itself. So oftentimes students are like, well, what happens at the edge of space? And I'm like, well, space is kind of just, there and stuff is in it and behaving a certain way because the laws of physics or at least our current understanding of the laws of physics uh, behaves a certain way you know those are the rules if you will and physics mm -hmm. is about sort of quantifying those rules and then making predictive models about what to expect so i don't think that other galaxies or other solar systems would have any different physics there's no you know there's no implication yeah. that that's the case in fact finding all these exoplanets like we are, are just reinforcing the idea that the rules of physics are the same. This is something I think that the story has changed on over time as well. There was a time where we weren't sure if the physics would be the same out there. I mean, there is something called the universality principle that, su that suggests that it should be <laughs> the same out there unless we see evidence that it's not. But, you know, we've continued to see evidence that it is. Uh, there was at one point a time where people wondered, uh, could maybe some certain faraway objects, whether whole galaxies or systems or whatever, uh, be made out of uh, antimatter. And and since then, we've discovered that is most likely not the case. The whole universe, as far as we know, is made out of matter, which in, in particle physics has led to the question, well, why is that the case? How did that uh, mm. evolve to be the case where, you know, if the two are kind of symmetric to each other, why would one dominate um, the other? But what we can observe is that apparently matter is the dominant and is the thing that, that is around us. Eric, Eric that, brings up an interesting yeah. point, Matthew, if I could just jump on that. I just yeah. read an interesting article about antimatter. And that article was asking what appears to be a very simple question. If you had a, a, a ball of antimatter, a, a pile of antimatter, and you stuck it on Earth, you know, you insulate it so it doesn't touch the matter on Earth, would it fall to the ground? In other words, does gravity act the same way on antimatter as it acts on matter? In a sense, that sounds like a, a simple question, right? I mean, of, of course, things fall, right? But we don't know that. We actually haven't been able to analyze antimatter long enough 
to be able to see if matter, antimatter behaves in the same way in a gravitational field. Now you're saying, well, what would be the application of that? Well, in the article, they went on to say that if there was such a thing, well, there is such a thing as antimatter, but if there was antimatter in a place and it didn't obey gravity the way it normally worked, let's say there's anti-gravity or whatever it is, it's opposite. We could potentially use that to manipulate gravity in our sphere, right? So you could build a ship where you could use antimatter to sort of turn gravity on and off, right? So, I mean, if you think yeah. about things like Star Trek, I mean, how do they have gravity on the spaceship, right? Well, in the, in the in movies, they say, well, they just turn on the gravity. Well, what the heck does that mean? Because the only way we know to turn on the gravity is either A, have a planet like Earth underneath us, so we're feeling gravity right now, or B, somehow create some sort of like gravity, so spin the ship or something like that. But imagine if, imagine if matter itself and antimatter itself behaved in a different way under you know the laws of physics, if you will, were reversed. It doesn't appear that way. From everything I've read, antimatter behaves the same way as matter. I want to jump in and say that uh, thinking that gravity would be different for antimatter is a hard one for me to yeah. to, uh, to accept or to because antimatter still has positive mass, and so following the Einstein equation, there's the yeah. gravity should be the same for that. On the other hand, I, I have read some. There there are ongoing experiments, like if if we actually manage to create, and I think we have now. Um, to create uh, stable antimatter atoms and then see if their properties are the same. So I, I have read some yeah. about experiments. I have to admit it's not on the top of my mind if there were any results. I believe they turned out as expected, but but that, yeah, and you know, that's, that, like and that's but that's getting more to like you could say that the, are the quantum properties of like antimatter atoms the same as regular uh, atoms? And that I mean like if they were found to be different, that would be something that then like if you looked at far away stuff out there emitting light and you could then look at its properties, you could look at the absorption lines and things like that. Uh, and if, if there was a known shift there for antimatter, and if you're, at least if your ability to measure it was precise enough, maybe you could, could see that. Uh, yeah, I think, I think Eric and I are, are we're kind of delving into an interesting little thing for us because we're <laughs> physics folks. But yeah. I will say this, the underlying principle I think is important for people to pick up on. And that is that Eric and I are, we're, we're sort of, we're trying to base our ideas on what we think we know, right? And so then Eric's intuition and my intuition as well is that antimatter would have gravity just like matter would, right? Uh -huh. However, what we need to do is do the experiments, right? So what the yeah. article was saying is they've never done an experiment on antimatter. Now that they've yeah. been able to, uh, they were saying keep antimatter atoms in place for like 20 minutes before they annihilated. Could they actually do such an experiment? Now, what does that have to do with UFOs? What it has to do with is the basic research that is so fundamentally important. The average person says, why do I need to spend, why do we spend billions of taxpayer dollars, you know, building a super collider in CERN, Switzerland uh, to, to, to smash atoms together to see what atoms are made of? Who cares? I mean, the fact is a cup of coffee tastes like a cup of coffee. Why do we need that stuff? And the answer is, if we don't understand what atoms are, we don't understand what gravity is. If we don't understand what forces are, if we don't understand what the speed of light is, then, then we have no fundamental understanding of how to manipulate those things to our advantage moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I think this might be a nice moment to sort of mention what we, we had talked about in the pre-game pre before people turned, tuned in about the notion of how we might use physics to our advantage to build a ship that could potentially travel or skirt the laws of physics as we know them, but not break them. Mm. Specifically, I was referring to the Alcubierre drive that uh, we were discussing. Yeah. Yeah. If, I, if I may say really quick, you make a really good point because science is ultimately based on, on experiments and measurements. Yes. And yeah. so even if we're really confident in our theory that says that, that antimatter should behave in gravity the same as matter, if we never test it, we, you know, we potentially you know, right. like the potential of a discovery, if it were different, would be huge, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and so we'd, we'd be remiss to not go look for that. Yeah, that, that was what the article really said. It was like, look, 
it's probably going to behave normal, but if it doesn't, that opens up an incredible Pandora's box of opportunity. Yeah. Mm, I see. Hey, another another awesome topic is time dilation uh, and special relativity. So, can we be, maybe um, briefly explain like what is time dilation and what is special relativity, and maybe how it could be related to space travel and possibly UFOs? And I have a couple simple phrases that I uh, like to tell my students for these. Uh, and the, one of the simple phrases is moving processes take longer. So now when I say that phrase, you might say, wait, does that mean that if I put like, what, what is a process for one thing? Like what well, could be like something like how long does it take to cook an egg or something like that, right? Although maybe that's not the best objective process right there, but it's the first one that popped in my mind. Uh, but it's, you know, something that takes a, a well-defined uh, duration, but you put it on in motion or on an object that is moving. And what time dilation says is now you're going to measure that same process. And normally, like, let's say you had a process that took five minutes and now you got you set it moving. It's going to take a little bit longer. Now, for objects that are moving at speeds that are not like terribly fast compared to the speed of light, which is pretty much everything in our reality, like not, nothing really gets that fast compared to light. You know, you look at like the fastest cars and airplanes, even things like that. Uh, they're not getting anywhere close to the to the point of uh, these effects being all that meaningful, although. Uh, they have been measured uh, using atomic clocks on airplanes, and there is a correction in the GPS satellites for time dilation, and that's mainly because of the level of precision required in order for GPS to work. Um, so those are two two things that are worth mentioning in terms of reality and where we can we, where we have and do see time dilation come into play. But like if you put in an object that takes five minutes, like like maybe sitting here in front of me, and then I put it on a car going 60 miles per hour, is, is it still going to take five minutes? I'm pretty much going to say yes, it is. But on the other hand, you put it on something that let me see off the top of my head. Let's say it's um, going like 80% of the speed of light. Um, I think it would actually take about 67% longer, actually, for that number. So uh, whatever, you know, you add 67% to whatever five minutes was, um, and and you would get the, the length of time if, if, the, if it's going at 80% the speed of light. Now, 80% the speed of light is really, really fast. But all of this, and this is something I really want to stress, all of this is observer dependent. This is one of the big, big ideas in, mm -hmm. in special relativity is the idea that different observers actually can objectively see reality differently and part of that is because when i said you know like a moving clock runs slower well that depends on the observer so like if i put a clock on some like space vehicle going 80 percent of the speed of light it's going to run slower but if i'm on the vehicle holding the clock it won't run slower because to me it's not moving i'm holding it mm -hmm. and so like if, if if it's like let's say i'm on the spaceship and john is on earth he would say my clock is running slower and, and i would say no it's not it's running just fine yeah, and that's that's a good point. So if you're on a ship traveling at 80 or 99% the speed of light out to a star, you would appear to get out to that star from your perspective, you know, uh, quick, if you will. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a one it's a one year trip to get to a star that you thought was going to take you 100 years. But the people on Earth yeah. would still say, "Whoa, it took you 100 years to get there." So yeah, so that is that is the bonus of being on the ship. I agree with that that notion. That, so yeah, if I can interrupt real quick, like that's yeah. one of the reasons I think. Uh, length contraction is part of this because really you wouldn't notice like time like moving slower for yourself. Right. Maybe if you communicate with Earth, you might. But even there, it turns out because from your perspective on the ship, Earth is moving. So mm -hmm. you would say their clocks are running slower. They would say, no, your clocks are running slower. <laughs> the two of you would actually disagree, which is disconcerting. However, you would turn out to both agree on how long uh, your clocks would time the trip from you to your destination. But yeah. length contraction comes into play with that because as soon as you start moving at like whatever, 80% the speed of light, 
the distance to your destination is actually shorter, which is really bizarre. It's like, it would be amazing to look at you. Somebody like, wow, it's a lot closer than we thought it was if you look through a telescope or whatever on your way to it. You know? So the fact of the matter is that you there are a lot of issues about approaching the speed of light. Time starts to change for you relative to other people. The idea, if you hit a speck of dust, it's carrying so much speed. I mean, it's like hitting a bug on, you know, you hit a bug at 60 miles an hour and there's a pretty good thud. If you have your hand out the window, it can hurt, right? I mean, the fact is you're carrying that speed and you hit a bit of dust and you could destroy the ship as we alluded to earlier. So here's where we got to find a way to get up to high speeds to get to a place quicker without having to deal with the, the junk that we have to deal with with time dilation and lane contraction like we were discussing. And that's where this guy, Al Kubiera, has this really intriguing idea, which is he says, look, my, and he's, he's a physicist himself from Mexico, and he says, look, I've done the research, and I think rather than actually stream through space at high speeds, what if we actually distort space itself? <laughs> Which is a kind of some of the things you were talking about earlier. What is space? Remember, in my definition of what is space, it's just, you know, if there's no matter, it's just empty, but the laws of physics exist. But Einstein really suggested that there's this thing called space-time. It's, it's where the laws of physics exist, right? And Alcubierre put it one step further and says, if you have a, enough energy, you can actually distort space-time. Okay. Or if you have enough mass, you can distort space time. Like energy and mass are sort of interchangeable. The E equals MC squared thing. Okay. So E is energy, M is mass. But the notion is that like the earth distorts space, right? So earth sits in space. And if you could see space time, you would see that space time is sort of, is sort of bent down like a bowling ball on a mattress, right? That's the traditional idea by the matter of earth. So what if you had a spaceship floating in space? Well, spaceship doesn't have much mass, but what if you used energy instead to distort space. Alcubierre is suggesting that you could actually distort space in front of you. So you can crunch space in front of you and expand space behind you, and you could ride a wave, dare I say, a warp, a warping of space. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very, it's, it's definitely inspired by Star Trek. It's got to be. Yeah. The notion that you somehow, in Star Trek, they travel faster than the speed of light by essentially warping space in front of them and expanding space behind them. So they ride a wave. It's like a surfer on a surfboard. The surfboard itself, if you're standing on the surfboard, it doesn't feel like you're moving, yet you're racing over the water, which is the, the metaphor for space-time here. Mm. When you mentioned about the relation to Star Trek, I wound up reading since our preliminary session that Alcubierre apparently emailed William Shatner saying that he had gotten motivation to call it the Alcubierre warp drive you know, from Star Trek. <laughs> so I just thought that was really that's cool. Awesome. That's, that's good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like it. I mean, look, let's, let's be honest here. Just like the UFO stuff, People need their imagination stoked to really work on an idea, right? Um, and everyone needs a little bit, especially in this day and age, a little bit of a sense of wonder in the unknown, right? So, I mean, Eric and I just sort of glossed over at the very beginning this idea of UAPs and everything, you know, and it, and, and there are certainly stories in, in the class I teach on UFOs. I mean, there are people that bring stories into that. And we, at the end of the day, we just say, I don't know. I mean, maybe that is something coming to visit. I, my personal belief is that the universe is teeming with life, but whether or not that life can get here, and this is what we're discussing now, or whether the timing is right, um, is another piece of the story too, that maybe we'll have a chance to get to. But the fact of the matter is, you know, the idea that we're alone in the universe, I think is highly unlikely. The idea that life is visiting us at this very moment in time and is not clandestine in some way, is, is not hidden in some way. Um, mm -hmm. that's, you know, an unknown, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, would they want to connect with us? I hate to bring up Star Trek again, but there's the prime directive, right? The idea that you don't interfere with a species who doesn't know you're out there. You know, you let their evolution take place in, in, in their, in their sociology, if you will, take place mm -hmm. in its own way. Um, I just want to circle back to Alcubierre for a minute and recognize that the, 
the, when Alcubierre first did his calculations, the amount of energy he needed to warp space and create this type of ship was greater than the sun produces over its 10 billion year lifespan. Okay, so when he first did the calculation, he's like, well, it could be done, but it really can't be done because that's a lot of energy. He has since uh, refined his calculations. And I think his latest work suggests that, you know, the amount of light coming off the sun, the amount of energy coming off the sun in a week, if we could capture that, we could build a ship that could warp space and yeah. get us out to the stars dramatically faster than the speed uh, of light suggests. What, what do you think, John? Or, there was another physicist involved as well, I think, who helped with the, the, yeah. the second calculation. But, um, but even... You know, one of the things that makes me a little skeptical is that even if you have enough energy, um, like the way the Einstein equations work is you can put a metric into them on one side that works, which is like th that re would represent the Alcubierre warp drive. And then what the equation would spit out is like, OK, here's what here's what the kind of matter and energy in that space would need to be for that for that to occur. And that's kind of where that like that initial result of like, oh, it would be like this huge, like more energy than the sun would emit in its lifetime. Um, or, you know, and that has been revised with a slightly different metric, was my understanding. But even if the energy requirements are met, um, the properties of the material that would be needed to actually make yes. that that metric happen or that warp field, borrowing a term from Star Trek to happen, um, don't exist as far as we know, um, you know, in the universe that we've been able to observe. And so that's another bit of a you know, a bit of a wrinkle. It would require uh, exotic materials. Which yeah, exotic. Exactly. That's what I'm referring to. Exotic kind of uh, <laughs> things that we don't know. Exist. Density material. And so how do you produce that is yeah. kind of a question. And, and, and maybe at some point we'll figure out a way. I mean, there's I even saw a little speculation about, hey, it could be like dark energy, which is sort of like a really uh, low density negative energy throughout the universe is one way of thinking about it. But who knows if that would really be viable? Yeah, I mean, there there may be other things that we can tap into other than sunlight. Sunlight's kind of the yeah. traditional burning fire in the in the and and we grab some energy from it, right? But yeah, what Eric's referring to as dark energy is kind of like I mean, I go to San Francisco and we got the the trolley cars, right? And the trolley cars latch onto that rope that's flying yeah. underneath there, and every once in a while they grab the rope and they go flying forward, right? And they adjust how hard they pull on hold onto that rope. Maybe one of the ropes of the universe, if you will, I've never <laughs> thought about it this way, is dark energy, you know, and we can somehow tap into that, use that to sort of pull us along and then let go when we need to. I mean, we, we have no clue what dark, and that, the only thing yeah. that allows me to even say that and keep my degree is that we don't know much about what dark energy is, right? Okay, well, so I've even seen it suggested that dark energy might be like, like an example of a modern epicycle that, you know, maybe it's really a thing, maybe not, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I've become more convinced that it is really a thing, but, yeah, you know, um, and what Eric's really saying with the epicycle is that was when they thought that the Earth was the center of the universe and they kept trying to jam the theory in to explain it. So yeah. they came up with all sorts of contorted things that didn't work. Yeah. I kind of agree with Eric from a physics perspective. The dark energy may not even be real, even though it's supposed to be more pervasive than regular matter and, and, and dark matter, and that we just may be trying to jam our physics into some unexplained or unobserved mm. phenomenon. So I think we may just have... We may be so naive, if you will, in our physics that we sort of say, well, it must be something big. Well, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just a lot. Yeah. Do either of you think that um, space travel, um, space travel in terms of like we're finding more and more exoplanets um, and the discovery of these exoplanets, do you think it makes it uh, more likely for us to, you know, engage in space travel? And does it make us want to engage in space travel, do you think? 
I mean, I think, look, this human beings probably at Elon Musk's prodding are going to be hanging out on the moon and Mars and heading out to the outer solar system in the next couple of decades. I mean, we're, we're going to be exploring our solar system much better than we, we were on our way to doing that in the 60s. And then we beat the Russians to the moon. And then everybody just said, well, there's no one else to race. And we stopped racing, right? I mean, we could have been on Mars in the 80s um, with the tech that we had. But you know, I, I I think the exploration of exoplanets is going to require a breakthrough of understanding. Um, it's going to require some physics that we don't have a handle on right now, uh, and that may not exist. And that may be why we have or haven't been visited, right? I mean, if the laws of physics just preclude traveling those distances, unless you get in the ship and turn into a popsicle and, and hang out for a thousand years, then maybe it isn't possible. I will say this, Matthew, and that is that astronomy can do some amazing stuff with the physics that Eric was talking about. Um, we can take the light from a faraway planet and tease apart that light. And through something called spectroscopy that he mentioned earlier, we can actually tell what the planet's atmosphere is made of. We can tell what the gases are present in the atmosphere. Yeah. So like if we did this for Earth, we would find oxygen in our atmosphere. And, we, and that's strange because the rest of the inner solar system doesn't have the conditions. You're like, what creates oxygen? Well, on Earth, it's this quirky bit of chemistry we call biology, right? In, in a sense, oxygen, right? Yeah, the what? Photosynthesis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the it's the signature of life. It's a biomarker, the photosynthesis. This chemical reaction, and I'm sort of, <laughs> I'm saying that's a weird way to think about it. Biology is a subset of chemistry, right? I mean, biology is a set of chemical reactions. I'm not demeaning biology. I'm just suggesting if there's all this chemistry going on, and biology is a cool application of that chemistry. So we might be able to find in very near terms, I mean, literally within the next decade, probably sooner than that, with the use of the Webb Space Telescope, which is about to launch this year, we'll be able to study exoplanets and tell what the composition of their atmospheres are. And if their atmospheres have some quirky whatever, then those those may be indicative of bar biomarkers, like oxygen on, if we were looking at us from a great distance, alien species would say, whoa, that atmosphere is different than the atmosphere of Venus and Mars. Venus and Mars's atmosphere are volcanic atmospheres. The atmosphere of Earth is something else. And the something else is biology. So in other words, yeah. you don't have to go there and put boot prints on the surface of a planet to be able to analyze and potentially even communicate with uh, a life on one of those worlds. So I think that's more likely. I think in our solar system, we're gonna be running around putting the blueprints. And then in the, in, the, in the broader context, we're going to be finding cool things and then using like radio telescopes to listen to see if there's any emissions and that sort of thing. And then, like Eric suggested earlier, maybe it's autonomous ships, maybe it's ships with AI, maybe it's not people. I know that's not as exciting. We want the flags and the footprints, but I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the way we explore the, the galaxy first. I agree. I mean, in that sense, exploration remotely, you know, like not not going there is, is the more likely thing. I, I do think, though, that some of those discoveries could have remarkable consequences. I mean, imagine if we suddenly do discover like, hey, there's life in another system. We're convinced of that now. I mean, that would change, I think, a lot of people's thinking both about our place in the universe and also what we should be doing in the future, right? And so, uh, I mean, in that sense, imagine if we ever actually got a signal from some other world that indicated intelligence and we could start sending signals and maybe it would take years for the signals to travel back and forth, but that would have a huge impact, I think, on how humans view themselves and, and how it would motivate us, I think, to pursue things beyond, beyond the cradle, so to speak, that we're in right now. That is a tremendously important point that Eric just made, is that I think finding life on another world has the potential to reframe how we view ourselves as human beings. Um, and I think that's one of the most exciting pieces. It's, it's more of a sociological question than it is a science question. 
But finding life on another world suddenly makes us look to ourselves and say, well, maybe we're not as different from each other as we thought, right? We, we've spent a lot of time sort of pointing at this person or that person saying, well, they're different. They have different this, different that, whatever. And we make these distinctions and that causes a lot of friction, unfortunately. Um, whereas if we suddenly realize that we're one of a larger group of living things, not just on this planet, which we're starting to become more aware of, um, but uh, uh, in the broader solar system and, and universe, then suddenly we start thinking of ourselves more collectively. And I think that's the key to our future uh, for, you know, more sustainable situation mm -hmm. on the, this planet is looking at ourselves more collectively rather than kind of splitting ourselves apart. And I realize, you know, that's, uh, you know, people are probably like, wow, that sounds like a really neat premise. I mean, and that's, <laughs> that's something you're going to talk about in poli sci or sociology mm -hmm. or psychology, but it's part of the story here. I mean, I think, I do believe in the next decade, we're going to find life in our solar system. Um, mm -hmm. Something, you know, maybe it's even something that we've put there inadvertently. In other words, there's a lot of movement of material between planets. So it's possible that there's been some cross pollination in our solar system. Uh, it's possible that if we find something under a rock on Mars, mm -hmm. it's microbial and it looks a lot like the DNA of our microbes, we say, oh, maybe there was some cross pollination mm -hmm. there. Um, I, I think that's going to happen in the next decade. I, I think there's places in our solar system like Europa, moon of Jupiter, which has a global ocean of water, mm -hmm. Mars, where there's lakes underneath the polar caps. There's, there's going to be stuff. Mm -hmm. um, what would be intriguing is if we find stuff that doesn't look at all like us in our solar system, because then we'd say, well, wait a minute, something based not on carbon or something yeah. not on a double helix of DNA. That's when you go, whoa, holy mackerel. That means that two places in our solar system, just in our little solar system, got life going in two distinctly different ways. Then mm -hmm. the, the chance of there being life, and, I, I mean, and Eric and I have discussed this, I think so-called simple life is not that simple, okay? Building a cell is a really hard thing to do, okay? But once you get to the simple, the notion that you're going to get to the complex and the intelligent, I think, is 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 guaranteed almost. Mm -hmm. So if you show me 100 planets that had simple life and give them enough time, I think that 99 of those are going to have intelligent life forms eventually. Uh, as you said, like if there if 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 the start of life is common, probably the development of complexity is common, uh, and you given enough of those, some of them will develop intelligence. One of the questions that I think that sometimes comes to my mind is about how many of those would be long lasting, stable. Mm. You know, like in that sense, I think that brings something back to about like the, the situation we're in right now. It's like, would we survive long enough in the sense of not destroying our own environment yeah. to be around long enough and develop enough technology and, and do enough observations to even be able to make contact? And that's something that I think is kind of one of these big mm -hmm. questions about even if intelligent life is out there, what if we find it's all gone extinct because every civilization winds up destroying itself? And there are there is great discussion in this field about the idea of barriers. Like, can you get over certain barriers? Like we entered the nuclear age. Um, and so far, knock on wood, we've avoided like nuclear conflict and that sort of thing. Can we get past that barrier? Can we get past the genetic yeah. barrier where someone uh, creates some sort of bug or something that gets people sick? I mean, I'm not saying that's COVID, but uh, the nature <laughs> nature is doing yeah. a, a good job of that. Can we get to that point, Eric said, where we can get over those barriers, get over our own sort of misgivings about each other and get to the point where we're truly sustainable? And that's where intelligent life spreads throughout the universe. If you don't do that, you know, we're I, I personally I believe I, I agree with Eric that we're sort of right on the cusp right now. I mean, we're we're messing with the climate. We're doing stuff that we shouldn't be doing, you know, and we're we're right. It's almost like it's despite ourselves. We're moving forward. Right. I mean, I hate to you know, I want to say it, but the vaccine is a perfect example. I mean, the vaccine is readily available to people. 
why wouldn't you take it? I mean, the fact of the matter is the vaccine scientifically looks very efficacious and it gives us a chance to redeem society once more. Climate change is the same thing. We don't need oil and coal. We need to use solar and wind. I mean, that that's the future. It's right there. It's just a matter of grasping it and getting past mm-hmm. our own sort of, you know, whatever preconceptions we have about the current models, right? Mm-hmm. Are there barriers that are very difficult to get over? And that would be the one reason why perhaps the universe isn't teeming with intelligent life forms. Like intelligent life forms only last a few million years. And then there's something that happens. Maybe it's exterior to them. Like look at the dinosaurs. I mean, that was that was uh, an asteroid, you know, that things happen, you know, and uh, the asteroid fell from the sky and, and boom, 70% of the species on earth go away. All right. You know, our galaxy was visited in 2017 by a flying object, the, the Oumuamua. Um, and yeah. Oumuamua means uh, a scout or a messenger from a distant past reaching out to us. Yes. Um, and I remember actually watching a TED talk in the fall of 2017. I was so amazed and so intrigued. This like oblong kind of um, long yeah. rectangular shape flying through the universe coming in our galaxy. And and what what did it do? And, and why was there so much speculation about it? Okay, so Oumuamua, I love it. Um, it it's what appears to be the first of a, a group of, of asteroids called interstellar asteroids or comets. These are actually most asteroids and comets we see are in our solar system. They whip around, they, we notice them, they, they orbit the sun. This one came from a position, you're right, it was discovered in late 2017, where we know it came from outside of our solar system. Now that in and of itself is not all that strange. We just finished saying that there are exoplanets, right? So there are asteroids and comets orbiting other stars. We know that. And sometimes those get picked off by gravity and go flying through space. And probably sometimes they travel from one star to another. So that's what Oumuamua could be. It just could be a comet, a bit of ice from another solar system that just flew through. What caught our attention though, and this is what's intriguing as Matthew suggested, is number one, it's shape. It was sort of this elongated, sort of flattened, disc-ish, elongated cigar shape or whatever thing it was slowly rotating. And as it went around the sun and used the sun's gravity to fling it out of the solar system, which is what comets do sometimes, I say used because the implication was maybe it was one of those ships that was sent. Maybe not with beings in it, but maybe it's the AI driven ship. And the AI said, hey, let's go fly through that solar system and let's you know be clandestine about it, you know, if you will, let's be hidden. You know, So they fly through, they use the sun's gravity But the problem is when it was flying out of the solar system, it actually picked up speed that it doesn't look like it should have. That's the physics problem. In other words, the sun gives you a certain amount of slingshot effect there, but this thing had more speed than it should have coming around the slingshot. So then scientists are like, wait a minute, does it have propulsion in it? And then then people scrambled. They did what scientists do. They say, well, what's the most likely explanation? Someone said, well, it's a comet. It's made of ice, the ice melts. The ice creates jets on the surface. We've seen that in our own comets and like Halley's Comet. That's why Halley's Comet changes its orbit every time around. The jets kind of, you know, indirectly move this thing. So maybe this thing had jets. So people go, well, did you see any jets? And the answer is no, we didn't see any jets. And that that's the problem is that it doesn't look like it could fit the models. That, and then people said, well, what if it was some sort of interstellar craft that was created yeah. and it flung through and maybe it accelerated and perhaps that was the telltale sign. And NASA thought this was a reasonable enough idea to actually point radio telescopes at the ship to see if it was emitting any sort of signal. They didn't hear anything. Right. But again, that's like turning on your radio and tuning into three stations. There's a thousand stations out there. They can't tune into all of them. So the idea that they wouldn't potentially hear anything. I mean, my personal belief of Oumuamua is sadly it was probably just an interstellar comet. But, and those are interestingly enough, interesting enough, but I, in the back of my mind, that might be evidence of something coming to explore us clandestinely, just kind of, you know, just sort of hiding it so yeah. we don't get all riled up. 
but recognizing that this thing behaved in a way. I mean, there are some models out there. Maybe it was frozen nitrogen gas. Maybe we didn't see a tail because it was hard to see. You know, maybe there were jets. Maybe, but I think there's still a distinct possibility, you know, that, I mean, there's a Harvard professor who's suggesting this and he's selling lots of books. I'm not trying to sell any books. I'm just telling you that I think there's maybe that 10% chance in the back of my mind that this thing could have been some sort of interstellar probe that flew through our solar yeah. system. You said earlier at one point, you were talking about how, you know, like, there are a lot of things we can say. Somebody asked, like, if somebody asked me, what's a more and more? I would just say, I don't know. Yeah. I don't have enough evidence to really decide one way or another. And that, in some ways, that's the most scientific possible thing to say, which is maybe maybe a little bit ironic sounding, given that when you teach a science class, you want your students to know things, right? Yeah. Yeah, the most scientific thing to say is, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious, you know? And unfortunately, Amuamua has gone its way. And so maybe we won't be able to answer any more questions about it. It, it certainly is interesting to, to think about, like, what if it is like some kind of, you know, probe or craft or whatever, or maybe had a solar sail or something that it used while it was here and that that may explains the shape that we saw. Uh, if it's not a rock, it would have lower mass as well, which would potentially explain how a solar sail could accelerate it without any emission of gas jets or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and yet we don't have enough evidence to really say that that's what it really is. But it, again, certainly it's interesting to, to think about the possibility. It's, it's so fascinating that it, how it used, I mean, we, we're using that term used, but it used <laughs> the the sun to really boomerang around, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and it's like, okay, if it was doing that, was that on accident? Was that a coincidence or was that on purpose? And if it were, I would say trips like that take a lot of planning. Like that's not something like, I think a misapprehension would be like if it were some kind of alien crack, whether run by an AI system or actual beings yeah. on board, uh, they wouldn't just be like going along and suddenly say, oh, that like that solar system over there looks interesting. Let's just pop in and take a look. No, they probably would have planned their trip from, from launch pretty much mm -hmm. that they wanted to slingshot. And, and you know, just like, when we send things to Mars, like we have to very carefully plan that. Yeah. Sure the 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 uh, transit orbit is is just the transfer orbit is just the right timing and so on. Because when uh, you're dealing with that much distance, I mean, one degree yeah. off could. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So it's not in in that sense, like you know, if they did go through our system and maybe do a scan while they were here that we didn't notice. My understanding is that it was actually observed after it was already more than halfway through. Yeah. Um, our system, so we may we may not if they, if they were you know uh, doing something maybe we didn't notice right maybe it yeah. happened before we noticed it. Um, and again, all that speculation because we, we don't really know, um, but they certainly couldn't turn around and then say, oh, well, we saw something, let's go over a visit. If anything, they'd probably send a follow-up, you know, yep. mission or something like that to us if that, if that were the case. So, I mean, if it is, maybe we'll see, you know, if, if it came from a star system, that's not too far away, uh, then who knows in a few decades we could see something, but, or otherwise maybe we don't, you know, if it's really just a, a rock that flew through, right? If I could just quickly follow, piggyback on uh, what Eric just said, I think the timing is an important piece of this. We've talked about timing in terms of distance, but that's another point that we didn't really get to, and it's worth just throwing out there, is that the universe is a lot older than our solar system. So we kind of imagine that if there's life in the universe, that it's probably similar place that we are in terms of intelligence and evolution and technology. But I think that's ridiculously unlikely. I mean, I think that there could easily be planets that we know that there are Earth-like planets out there that are billions of years older than our planet. And there are ones that are billions of years younger. And no one says that evolution always takes place at the same rate either. So the notion that you were going to get Will Smith or, you know, uh, somebody to jump into the ship and punch the alien and go fly it around like we do, you know, that the <laughs> tech is similar to where we are, um, is, I think, highly unlikely. So 
we could they could be using uh you know methods of analysis that are so far beyond where we are that we would call it effectively magic right i mean that's what we thought physics was you know long mm -hmm. ago it was magic right it was uh, you were studying things that people did not understand mm -hmm. i think we have a better sense of tech now than they did a few hundred years ago so we probably wouldn't be as surprised but i still think there are there are fields and like we were talking about dark matter earlier that are so so new that um you know there may be more to the story than we are even you know perceiving at this point that we can even imagine at this point Mm -hmm. uh, and Oumuamua may just be, you know, one example of how that's taking place. Um, something else I wanted to mention and ask about is the, the companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, and then the idea of Space Force. Um, you know, like what are these what are these um, organizations trying to do in space and, and what are your predictions? I mean, from the last hundred years where we've been in space to now, I mean, we went through so much, so many different ways of looking at it, ways of going up there. But where are we heading there now in the next 10, 20 years? Um, Eric's point to me and I'll say, well, I mean, my guess is, you know, from where I've seen it go, I mean, I was born in 69, we were just landing on the moon, where are we now? I do think we're at a moment of acceleration. I think it's sort of like things kind of stay for a while at the same way, and then they suddenly burst up, you know, it's sort of like the new iPhone coming out. Um, the, the It's the same thing in space travel. I do think that, you know, places, there's going to be a lot of space tourism. There's going to be people who are not astronauts going into space whether it's in low earth orbit or eventually going to the moon and stuff like that, that's gonna happen. We're gonna have human beings setting foot on um, you know, other worlds and maybe even landing there and staying, you know, like mm. the moon and Mars for bases and whatnot. And I do think with, the, with SpaceX, the big thing with SpaceX was um, the low cost rockets, right? The rockets that are reusable. So suddenly it doesn't cost you a hundred million dollars to build a rocket, it costs you a couple million to refuel that rocket. And that allows us to do lots of cool science. I mean, that allows us to send 100 missions out to Jupiter's moons, not just one, and hope that it gets information. It allows us to send all those follow-up missions. So I do think that the, the future I see, in, in, in the near future at least, is, is that sort of thing. It's, it's that nearby exploration. Mm -hmm. I do think the other thing that's going to drive us into space are resources. And this is actually not a bad thing. Right. So like rare earth metals, they're 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 rare on Earth. And the few places that they are left are really ecologically sensitive areas like the rainforest. So you need those rare earth metals for things like cell phones and computers and whatnot. So why not go to an asteroid? You know, I'm not talking about mining asteroids for gold or silver. I'm talking for mining it for things that are gold to us, like rare earth metals. There may be a time in the very near future with, the, again, the lowering of launch costs that we start to see serious mining of asteroids, the moon surface and whatnot, and bringing those resources back to Earth so we don't exhaust the precious resources we have on this planet. And that's exciting. That actually, as much as I don't want them to go out there and bring, you know, sort of, you know, let's build an open pit mine on an asteroid. Quite honestly, I don't see that asteroid. Let's use it, you know, rather than, you know, create that same thing on Earth. And I think it makes us a more sustainable. We talked about harvesting the sunlight as an energy source, but what about harvesting the resources in our solar system that are so abundant? I think we're going to do that in the next 10 years or so as well. What, what do you think about that, Eric? I think the key thing is the cost effectiveness of it. And that's the part I'm a little less maybe sure about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, whether it's 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 50 years from now or 100 years from now, uh, if you're getting more <laughs> pessimistic, uh, it takes a bit longer. Sometimes, like, I think part of what that comes from possibly is like maybe 95% or 99% of a problem is solved. And you think, okay, that last part's just going to, that's all we got to do to get there. But sometimes that last part winds up taking like a hundred times or a thousand times more effort yep. than you thought, or than the previous, you know, part 
uh, to actually do. And, and that's been common for us to, to get a little overly optimistic that way. So I'm just going to throw out that little grain of pessimism, I guess. Oh, I don't think it's pessimism. I think it's realistic. I agree with yeah, Eric. That realism, it, maybe. Yeah. I mean, the reality of it is 50 years from now, I mean, that's in the human, you know, in a human lifespan, it seems like a while. And we all want it to yeah. happen quick. But in the evolutionary history of life on Earth, 50 years, my gosh, that's nothing. It's, it's not even a sliver yeah. of, of, of a wink. So, I mean, I think humanity is destined to explore its solar system, use those resources, right. harvest the energy from the sun, and eventually get out to the stars. But that's going to take a couple more breakthroughs, you know, a couple more yeah. breakthroughs in order to get out there. And I do think it's way more likely that we will be discovered by an intelligent species than they will be, and that we will discover them. Now that's scary for everybody because we all watch the movies, right? In the movies, you know, it's, it's we need Will Smith to save us, you know. <laughs> I also think, and maybe this is naive on my part or optim overly optimistic, but I think if you can explore the universe, if you're out there truly doing the exploration, you're not there to exploit our resources and that sort of thing. You're there to, yeah. you know, to interact, to, to to perceive something in a different way, and that's what humanity, I would hope, gives us the possibility of of doing in our interactions with, you know. Yeah. It'll be a big motivation. Will be to go out and get resources for sure. To get yeah. No, so I think the resources is a motivator, but we can do a lot of cool things along the way. I mean, the motivator to go to the moon was to beat the Russians to the moon, right? But the science that we did on the moon was awesome. So we did the science piggybacking on the sort of the you know that notion of the Cold War and and, and that race to the moon. Awesome. Well, this has been such a good episode. I've learned so much, and it's been really fun talking to you too. Um, it's, yeah, likewise. We really appreciate everybody who listened to this episode and hopefully you learned a lot. Check out our next episode coming soon. Eric and John, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for hosting us here.